Okay. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. That would be page 11 in your pew Bible. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do, as her, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Beret. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. Thanks, Beverly. Let me uh, pray for us once again. Father, we uh, pause just once more and ask that uh, you would please uh, show us ourselves as we look into the, the old pages of this story, that you'd show us ourselves, that you would uh, give us a glimpse to see even our own sin, which still remains, and that you wouldn't just leave us there, but that you would then show us our, our Savior, show us ourselves, our sin, and our Savior. And we pray that you would make this book live to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're all familiar with the phrase, uh, two steps forward, one step back. It's, of course, this idea that progress and growth is always uh, impeded, it's incremental. So you might have a good stretch where you uh, get going on things, but then inevitably uh, you get off track. It happens in all sorts of areas of life. Uh, for instance, let's say it's Monday morning and you're committed to eating better for the upcoming week. So you say, good, I'm going to have a sensible breakfast of egg whites and wheat toast. Lunchtime, you do the big salad, grilled chicken, vinaigrette, dressing. You go, okay, 
dinner time, you do a reasonable portion, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, and then uh, the clock blinks 8.02 p.m., and then the trouble starts. Because you go, I could probably go for a little something salty, so you grab the pretzels. Then you go, I could probably go for a little something sweet, so you get the cookies. And then you go, I guess I might as well have some Doritos since I've already ruined the thing. You finish the night off with a scoop of ice cream and you feel completely miserable. Two steps forward, one step back. I want to suggest that that pattern of progress, regress, is often the experience of the Christian life. Uh, We have days where perhaps we start off well, you have a good Bible reading, you have uh, a time in which you pray, but then as you lay your head on the pillow at night, you're just so discouraged because you think about how angry you got in that conversation or how you gave into your devices and desires once more and they, they just got the best of you. Two steps forward, one step back. I think it's patently obvious that uh, our progress and our apprenticeship with Jesus, it's often slow, it's finicky, it's never linear and uncomplicated. I think it's usually messy and circular, this is us, but uh, nonetheless, by God's grace, there is this uh, trajectory of growth as God uh, takes us to be uh, with him and ultimately makes us into the people he's called us to be. Uh, This little uh, progress is what we've been seeing happening in Abram's life. But now, here in chapter 16, we're going to see some regress. He he stumbles in 16. I think he actually takes a giant step backwards. He's a complicated fellow because he's commended in the Bible uh, in Hebrews for his faith. He's a man of great faith. But then you read sort of the details and you go, well, he's vulnerable. He's rebellious. Sometimes he's foolish, downright selfish. I said, I I think he almost has like this default mode towards self-reliance and he gets himself into particularly difficult situations. And as I've said before, in that way, he's a lot like you and me. Also, like some of us, at least, uh, Abram is married and he's married to a woman called Sarai. Uh, She's uh, shown up here and there throughout the storytelling so far, but now here in chapter six, she moves center stage And as the camera light zooms in upon her, we are reminded that one of the heartaches of her marriage with Abram has been the fact of their infertility. It's been a tension and a disappointment to them, but there's even renewed uh, pressures upon them because as Abram and Sarai have now reached the the latter years of life, if I can say it this way, they're in the post-baby-making stage of uh, their marriage. And so, yes, this has been a disappointment but they've also now had to live with the fact that God has promised to them that they're going to have a naturally born son of their own. And in response to this, they're they're getting a bit disillusioned. And it's that disappointment uh, that we see on the pages in chapter 16. It's the disappointment of what they they don't see. There's there's no baby bump for Sarai. She remains uh, unable to conceive. That's what we have to keep in mind as we come to chapter 16 because we're going to actually see them get frustrated uh, about the unfulfilled state of their marriage, which then result in them dealing cruelly with each other and in particular to a woman called Hagar. This is a dark chapter in the life of this couple. Uh, I I don't hesitate to put a PG-13 label on this chapter. They, They take one giant step backward in their journey of faith which is really what you see happening in verses one through six. It's a scene, at least as I call it, of just relational mayhem. Relational mayhem. When I actually first read this part of the story and I made notes to myself, I read those verses and I just wrote, ouch. I wrote, oomph. 
And then I said, this isn't going to go well. Uh, This is what happens when you take your eyes off of God who reigns above and you get fixated on what you think you can do. I think all that's there, but perhaps relational mayhem is just easier to summarize things. Why is there mayhem? Well, uh, because instead of Abram and Sarai waiting on God's timing and the plans he has to give them this naturally born son, they take alternative measures by Abram availing himself to the ancient Near East practice of concubinage in order to have children when one's primary wife is barren. So there's this servant of their household, Hagar of Egypt, who is uh, introduced into the marriage as as a solution to their childless family. By way of a little background, uh, documents from the ancient Near East, even outside of the scriptures, show that the giving of a maidservant as a concubine was a regular custom of the day. In fact, some premarital agreements fully anticipated uh, that this was to be done in the situation of infertility so that the offspring uh, would be provided for for the family. One commentator I read referenced the fact that some of these ancient documents even anticipated the relational strain that could result in this type of arrangement and therefore provided laws to deal with the concubine who bore a child and then fell out of favor with her mistress. In other words, the domestic problems of jealousy and reproaches and broken relationships that we read about here in chapter 16 in Abram's family, they were common experiences of the day. And in speaking of this concubinage, you'll notice in verse 2 that it's Sarai who introduces uh, this idea for a baby-making alternative. Abram readily accepts this as a reasonable option. After all, up to this point in the story, uh, the promise that God uh, gives to Abram about making him a great nation, it actually has no exclusive tie uh, to Sarai. The exclusiveness of that promise, it becomes clear in the latter chapters, But here in 16, it's more like inferred rather than explicitly declared. But that being said, though, uh, what I find to be tricky about interpreting this part of the story is that, number one, as I just mentioned, what Abram and Sarai do, it's culturally allowable. And number two, it's difficult to know what to make sense of this because there is no uh, outright moral weighing in on the narrator's part. He's just simply telling us what happened. But all of the uh, marriage bed activity, it, it does beg the question for us, do, do Abram and Sarai get it wrong in this plan they've hatched? Well, here, here's the conclusion that, that I've landed on. Yes, there's no clear moral judgment provided by our narrator, but clearly the relational mayhem that erupts provides the answer to the question. This is not a good idea. Again, this is an inference on my part, but you'll notice that there's no seeking of the Lord in this scenario. There's no praying or altars or anything like that. There's just a plan, an action, and an agreement. And consequently, we read here that this plan of theirs, it leads to resentment, harshness, disappointments, because Abram sleeps with Hagar. She becomes pregnant. But the pregnancy doesn't result in joy. It leads to strife. Because as a result of Hagar's pregnancy, she is now in her own eyes relationally superior to Sarai. Uh, Our narrator tells us, verse 4, that Hagar looked with contempt upon Sarai. And Sarai has all of the intuition to pick up and say, like, I know exactly what you think of me. I can see it in your snotty looks. 
And so in her, in her outrage, in her jealousy because of the events, Sarai goes in her hurt and anger to Abram for help. And it's almost like Abram plays the part of the cliched aloof husband. He just removes himself from the situation and says, it's your girl, you deal with the problem. Sarai does deal with Hagar in the harshest of ways. So much so that Hagar in her pregnancy, essential singleness, runs away from the household and all of the mayhem. The, the, the first half of the chapter is just a sad, sad mess. But as you reflect upon it, you go, it actually shouldn't surprise us because this is what, this is what jealousy does. It, it leaves in its wake a hurt and, and sadness. I've been thinking about the word jealousy all week because I think that the ugliness of jealousy in the heart of Sarai is actually what's being put on display here. Definitionally speaking, jealousy basically has two subpoints to it. Uh, number one, jealousy is when we crave what someone else has. And number two, jealousy is when we overly possess what is ours. In other words, I want what you've got. And number two, I'm never giving away what I've got. Or if you wanted to think about it from a, another angle, there's a well-known novelist who, who, who said this, quote, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies. That's the destructive power of jealousy. There is, of course, a, a, a good sort of jealousy. After all, the scriptures tell us that God is jealous for his people. He calls us his treasured possession. He, he is the possessor. We are the possessed. We belong to him. His jealousy is aroused when his possession turns away from him or when his possession is threatened. It's interesting that when you uh, track through all of the usages of jealousy in the scriptures, the majority of the time they're related to God's uh, good jealousy, his, his godly jealousy for what is his. But what I want to, us to zoom on here is, is like the exception here in the scriptures, but it's, a, it's the, I just call it the ugly jealousy, the, the bad jealousy that's fermenting in Sarai. As Bible readers, it's important that we, uh, that we take note of this because warnings uh, about jealousy, they show up quite clearly in the New Testament, particularly from the pen of Paul. He has like these uh, sin lists uh, that he comes up with, uh, Romans 13, 2 Corinthians 12, Galatians 5, and, and almost always on those uh, lists of sins to repent of, uh, we find the word jealousy. And it's never far on the list from another word, anger. Because, as observed by Ed Welch, jealousy and anger are close neighbors of each other, with envy never living far away. So you can think about it like this. Jealousy is like the I want, I want of anger. And it's the I deserve this of envy. You get it. This is why jealousy is at the, start, at the center of so much strife and sin. It, it is lethal to relationships. It'll rot you uh, from the inside out. Well, one of the ways that jealousy uh, starts to take hold of us is when we have this lingering concern about fairness. Whenever you start to feel, well, that's not fair, be on the lookout for uh, jealousy. When you have this lingering concern about fairness that we don't let go, uh, you know, whatever it is. If you, if you have uh, children or you are a, a teenager, 
It's that feeling that you get when your sibling gets treated differently than you did And you're sort of provoked by the lack of thoughtfulness of your parents Or or maybe you're in chemistry class and you have a lab partner and you did way more of the work than your partner did But you both got the same grade and it just sticks with you That's what I mean in saying that jealousy is it starts small It starts really small with a little lingering concern for fairness But then it, it just grows ugly It grows large, I think, uh, when we uh, nurse it with a little bit of self-pity and a little bit of resentment. Listen how Ed Welch uh, fleshes this out. He says, And if we demand fairness as one of our core values, we usually respond to perceived unfairness with a quiet grumbling. I deserve this. You don't deserve it. That's jealousy. And if jealousy is left to smolder, I deserve this soon comes with a swagger of entitlement Which is then often followed by an act of foolishness So so jealousy typically it typically starts small but it grows ugly and large with a little nursing of self-pity and resentment There's much more that we could say here, but if you want to like cut to the chase I think what we uh, discover in the heart of a Christian who is hot with jealousy is that she's living out life as though God the Father isn't standing above her, ruling over her life with perfect wisdom. When he's jealous, when she's jealous, she's, she's blind to creation, forgetting that we belong to the Creator. She's blind. He's blind to our redemption through Jesus, who bought us back with a price after we left him. You talk about unfaithfulness. When she's jealous, she's lost sight of God's providence. She's fixated with her own agenda for life. Jealousy lives as though no God stands above us. Not only that, but the Christian who has jealousy smoldering in his heart, I deserve this, you don't deserve this, has also just completely uh, forgotten that what he deserves in life from God is actually a judgment for his rebellious ways. But that in God's Undeserved kindness to him He's been adopted into God's family And he receives grace and mercy from God Day after day In the most undeserved sorts of ways In some Jealousy lives as though God the Father Isn't reigning from heaven And so uh, The way out of jealousy's grip Is to reorient yourselves Toward a big view of God And we do that by way of, of Repenting of like our overly inflated view Of ourselves And what we think we deserve The way out of jealousy's grasp is to repent of our outlook of entitlement, to to repent of our bitterness, our resentment, our self-pity. Friends, I, I think it's nearly impossible for us to persist in jealousy if we repent of our entitlement perspective, and then we say to ourselves this, as the Apostle Paul puts it, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As we say those words, we're we're reorienting ourselves to the God who stands above us, and we bless him for how gracious he is to us in our Lord Jesus. To not do so causes havoc. It'll rot you from the inside. It creates ugly scenarios like we have here in chapter 16. Hagar, proud, 
In her pregnancy, she postures herself as better than Sarai. Sarai, incensed, uh, rages out in her anger. She deals harshly with Hagar. Abram, disengaged, in his easy chair, scrolling through his phone, derelict in his duties. The whole situation is just a broken mess, and everyone is at fault in some sort of way. That's the reason that Hagar determines that the best course of action is for her to get out of the house and head back to her homeland in Egypt. So she goes. As she goes, she's met by a spring of water where she's getting a drink, which then leads our narrator to pen this sentence, which turns the whole story in a different direction. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. He found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Do, Do you see? Do you see the rule and reign of God at work? Here's this mayhem and hurt and sinfulness, a failure on Abram's part, and then out of nowhere, the God who's ruling above steps down into the situation, which is what happens in 7 through 16 is that you almost see the, the counterpoint to the first one. If there's relational mayhem in 1 through 6, 7 through 20, you have this divine intervention, this divine intervention as the nearness of God is never far away From the hurts of his needy people We notice in verse 7 that this divine intervention comes through Someone who is identified as the angel of the Lord Like all angels, he's a heavenly being Sent from the heavenly court to earth as God's personal agent Sometimes these angels who show up as God's messengers They have names, Gabriel Sometimes they show up nameless When that happens, some scholars think that perhaps this is like a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm actually inclined to think that's what we have going on here, given the namelessness of the angel. I think this is a cloaked version of God himself showing up. After all, by the time the story ends, Hagar is convinced that she's seen more than a messenger of God. She says that she has met God himself. We'll get to that in just a minute, but... Notice again, verse 7, the description, the angel of the Lord found her, which tells us that this isn't some mere random act of happenstance. Oh, fancy meeting you here. I didn't know you would be here. No, he knew right where she would be. This is uh, the purposeful movements. Divine intervention is deliberate. It's not a fortuitous accident. After finding her, the angel of the Lord has, has a little chat with her, Hagar, how how are you doing? I'm glad you asked because the last two days of my life have been a complete miserable situation. Can I tell you about them? The angel listens, and then he makes this rather uncomfortable statement in verse 9. You need to return to your mistress and submit to her. It's a really jarring statement for him to make because we, we have those warning bells going off in the back of our head. Whoa, is he sending her back to an abusive relationship? It's an important question. It's a very legitimate concern. But I think we'll see in just a second that it's not one to be overly troubled by because we know outright that the abuse is not to be sent back to the abuser. So what what is the messenger doing here in this circumstance in Hagar's life? I found the the commentator Tremper Longman to bring uh, some clarity to this sensitive topic here. He writes this. This command is not necessarily a requirement to go back to an abusive relationship. Since the abuse was because Hagar lorded it over Sarai, the hope was that Hagar's submission to Sarai would alleviate the abuse. 
But even further, Hagar's return would, would be rewarded with a blessing that she, like Sarai, would have innumerable descendants. Let me parse that out. And in one way, what the angel is doing here is that I think he's gently laying his finger upon Hagar and is saying to her, listen, you know that you are a big part of the problem here. Not the only part, not the only part of the problem, but you've played a part in these things. Your pride of pregnancy has caused deep hurt in this household. You need to go back home and do your part to get the relationship back on order. So the angel also uh, uh, points her back to Abram's tent because he says, hey, listen, there's no blessing of God that will come upon you apart from Hagar, apart from Abram's presence. There's no blessing of found apart from his seed. I get it, as painful uh, though the way of submission might be, there's no other way for Hagar to receive this blessing of God. And it's pretty clear that Hagar gets this because she turns herself back around and she heads back toward Abram and Sarai. And I think what we see here in this messenger of God in this brief conversation is that he's, he, he's convicting Hagar of her, her pride, probably her snootiness, but he's also assuring her of a safe passage and a future blessing if she'll listen to his words and trust what he says. I think this is actually uh, the very picture of grace, of us and our sin and hurt, sometimes self-inflicted, sometimes it's hurt caused by other people, being met by God's intervention and redirection. Surely, you've, you've had those moments when God's Spirit just gently presses His, his finger upon your conscience. He sees this, uh, this ugliness in you, and he's, he's actually moving uh, towards you in order to change you. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Sometimes God's Spirit works with us in such a way that we go, I, I have to do my part to go and make things right over there. I, I have to fix what I broke in that relationship. I think there's a little bit of that going on here with Hagar. As far as it depends upon her, the messenger of God wants her to do her part to live at peace with other people. Now, before she returns to Abram, he then prophesies about the life of this baby inside of her. He says, hey, listen, you're going to give boy, birth to a boy who's going to be called Ishmael. Let me tell you right up front, he is going to be a handful for all of his life. He's going to be like a donkey, not easy to control, dangerous. He's going to be a hated man. He's going to live in hostility with his brothers. She takes all of that in, but still, she's so moved by this meeting with the Lord in the wilderness that she says, I have to mark out this moment for the rest of my life. Remember, she stopped here to get a drink, and she says, I'm going I'm to call this, uh, this well here, quote, well of the one who lives and sees me. God has seen me. That's what I'm going to call this place right here. God has seen me, which shows us that the God of the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth, is a personal God who is concerned about abused people and unborn babies. God has seen me. Friends, this is one of the reasons why as Christian people that we prize life uh, in the womb. It's why we're compassionate towards single moms, women in dangerous marriages. It's why we pray for Laura's home, which is just four miles from our church building here, that cares for moms in difficult situations with little ones. It's for uh, reasons like this that our church is a financial partner with the Cleveland Pregnancy Center because we want to support all that they do to protect the preborn. 
What God is like to Hagar is what we are to be in our day, having eyes to see the abused and needy and then moving toward them with compassion and provision. God has seen me. I mean, it's such a moment for this woman. She's been used and mistreated and rejected by her superiors, uh, but she's not so ruined that she's untouchable by God. He moves toward her. He sees her. She's been met by the God who sees her. She's so overwhelmed by it all. He's, He's seen me. And then he says, I have plans for your unborn son. Plans which will have worldwide repercussions, but nonetheless, she's blessed with child. That's the wrap-up to the chapter. It's like an epilogue. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. One of the beautiful things about this chapter is that we get this glimpse of God's uh, grace at work. He he ministers to Hagar, and, and he turns her life back around. You get a sense of the beauty of that, but we also see the, uh, the ugliness of sin in this chapter. In particular, we, we see once again that sin, jealousy, cruelty, self-pity, sin always complica- complicates things. It's to be repented of and turned away from. Uh, sin can't be ignored, hoping that it will magically go away. No, it doesn't work in our human relationships nor does it work in our relationship with God. It must be uh, atoned for. Which is why, of course, on the cross of Jesus, we see him making atonement for our sin and rebellion against God. We see him showing us the way for our relationship to restore it via forgiveness that comes to us through his life. Or, if you want to think about it through the theme of jealousy, upon the cross, in jealous love, Jesus drank the cup of jealous wrath and it's because of that act on the part of God's son that puts forgiveness of sin on this rock solid foundation for us when we repent of our jealousy and cruelty our selfishness our vindictiveness we are granted assured forgiveness from God because Jesus drank the cup of jealous wrath that we deserved to drink you you see friends Jesus is actually the true expression of God's good jealousy which doesn't just become enraged and lash out and destroy. No, his jealousy is redemptive. His jealous love reclaims and blesses his undeserved people. It's a good jealousy, which is what we have to uh, say to ourselves as we come back around to the beginning of the chapter. His love, his good jealousy, reclaims ruined sinners. You mean like people who take one giant step back after a couple steps forward and then another step back sometimes? Yeah. yeah. You mean like Abram who makes a mess of things? Yeah. He does make a mess of things, but he doesn't cause more mayhem than God's intervening grace can handle. Which brings me to this final thought. It's actually a final quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He he said this once to, to his Christian people. Remember, therefore... It's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's Christ. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It's Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you're grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Then he has this this great line. 
We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It's what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Which is to say, this week, if and when it happens, you fix your eyes on Jesus when you've had one of those experiences where you take two steps forward and one step back and another back and another painful one back. Because when that happens, you say to yourself, I can't look at my circumstances. I want to repent of them, but then I must look in hope, not to myself, but to Jesus, the source of hope. You look to him, especially when you've made a mess. For we shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It's what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul.